Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 109. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. So, hello everyone, welcome. It is a horrible day today. It is cold, wet and very, very miserable. But not here at Starship Sova HQ. I'll give you a little heads up what's on the show today. We have the editorial by myself and it's just a little reality check for my good self. Times are passing by quicker than I like. and I'm getting old and it's all to do with things like that and I'm noticing it by the use of the old or my computer, which I actually do to do this show. It's retiring. So a little editorial about that. We have a fact article by Ian H. Sturgis. Then we jump into the main fiction, which is After the Fire by Aliette de Boudard. Then we jump in with another fact article by Mr. J.J. Campanella. There is, as you notice there, there is no poem and no flash fiction. And that is purely because to do, I'll just run straight in with the editorial. It's to do with Starship Sova's, the main engine, the big old computer. She's getting a bit laboured. She's in pain sometimes. And tomorrow, we Starships Over HQ takes delivery of a brand new spanking computer to replace this old labored one. And it's weird how times, this is what's really kind of been preying on my mind, how quick things just fly over. Do you know, we're on now show 109. It wasn't that long ago, you know, show 109. Weeks have passed since show 100. We've been with this kind of project transcribe that's been going on in the background, you know, where we're getting some old shows like transcribed and put onto word format. You know, I've been listening to a lot, a lot of the old shows, and there was one of the few, a couple of them where, you know, Kieran's talking about his computer and he's, he's upgraded to 512 megabytes of memory. And then, you know, like halfway through, he said, Oh, no, 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 wait on it. It's 256. <laughs> it's not even a gigabyte. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, and he knew his mind, he was going, Yours oh, is such a big, fast thing. It's, does sums out of its mind and all of a sudden now this one is like it's laboured and slow so Starship so this is the final show that's going to be recorded on the original engine the original computer of Starship Sofa so a bit of a landmark time as well a bit of a sad passing but that computer's going to go up to Reed's room now so she's still you know she's going out to early retirement then she's going to be you know <laughs> giddy as a young fool in a field where she's playing all these little baby games you know like clue finders and junior monopoly but it has been played on my mind how quick just time flies over do you know what i mean like say starship silver's be it just feels just feels like a year ago since we really kicked off but god it's not it's nearly four years now and you know we're coming up now to the sofa note awards again and again that's Hasn't been that long ago since that was, you know, it was started that. So these are the kind of thoughts that are running through me. My time's creeping by. 
And it, it, I noticed it as well. <laughs> this is a strange way to notice how time's flying over. We've got the, the, the kind of wheelie bins, the rubbish bins, you know, of the kind of where I live, in the backyard, back garden kind of place. And we've got these crazy, white, like, curly mirrors. And every time I pass them, they're in the garden. Every time I pass them, I... Now, once in a while, I glance at myself. You know, have a little... Hey, you're looking all right, big lad. There's always... I just now see more and more grey. Do you know what I mean? I've got, like, a kind of stubbly beard there. It's all... It's, well, not all grey, but there's, there's more grey than colour. Do you know? And there's the salt and pepper colour hair there. And, oh, it's just... Oh, time's flying by. But anyways, enough dwelling on them times. Let's just stick with science fiction and everything good like that. Let's kick in with Amy H. Sturgis and her fact article. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time to look back into genre history. You may recall that on Oral Delight's program number 14, I talked about the subgenre of literary steampunk, and I traced its modern beginnings, as opposed to proto-steampunk, works by Jules Verne and such, to K.W. Jeter's Morlock Knight in 1979. And I definitely stand by that as the first novel of modern steampunk. However, the first work of modern steampunk wasn't literary at all. It was a television series. The Wild Wild West aired on U.S. television in 1965 through 1969. The series followed the exploits of two Secret Service agents during the administration of President Ulysses S. Grant, who was president from 1869 to 1877. These two agents were James West and Artemis Gordon, and they were equipped with a souped-up, high-tech, remarkable steam engine train called the Wanderer. And on this train, they covered the United States, went here and there on assignment from the president. Portraying James West was Robert Conrad, a young and remarkably athletic actor who really changed the rules of how action was portrayed on television because he organized his own group of stunt people who were the same from week to week, and together they choreographed remarkable fight scenes, and Conrad did his own stunts in the series. This became one of the stable ingredients of the show, was these remarkably choreographed fight scenes. It was not unusual for the character of James West to take on five, six opponents. And in his trademark fighting maneuver, which was a combination of boxing, karate, and moves taken from flamenco dancing, vanquished them all single-handedly. Conrad was also an undeniably beautiful man, which the show capitalized on by putting him in incredibly tight pants keeping the uh, straight female and gay male audiences coming back week to week. And on more than one occasion during the athletic action sequences, his pants actually split. And the scriptwriters also found excuses to repeatedly have James West put in positions of bondage, uh, usually shirtless, which also helped. The character of James West was originally the aide-de-camp to then-General Ulysses S. Grant during the Civil War, He became one of Grant's right-hand men, most trusted men, and thus one of the first Secret Service agents. He posed as a rich, aristocratic playboy who owned his own train and who simply was going across the country sightseeing. And under this cover, of course, he was righting wrongs and solving crimes. His main method of operations and finding out what the bad guys were doing 
was marching into their camp, allowing himself to be captured, often tortured, but being able to see their operations and learn of their intentions up close. For many of his great escapes, he relied on his partner, Artemis Gordon. Artemis Gordon was portrayed by Ross Martin, who already had his science fiction cred through starring in the George Powell film Conquest of Space in 1955, The Colossus of New York in 1959, and two excellent episodes of The Twilight Zone, among other things. Martin was a rather remarkable man. Born in Poland, raised in New York, he learned Yiddish, Polish, and Russian before he spoke English, and later went on also to be fluent in French, Spanish. While still a child, he was a concert-level violinist and Italian, as well as being a master of 52 different dialects. And he also completed law school before turning full-time to acting. If Robert Conrad's James West was the action hero and the eye candy, then Ross Martin's Artemis Gordon was the thinking person's delight. And let me tell you, the geek girls that I know all fell for Artie. Artemis brought a number of things to the partnership. First, he was a Shakespearean actor who was also gifted with accents. And so, in episode after episode, Artemis Gordon goes undercover using disguises of his own creation, both to gain information and to rescue his partner. What James West achieved through force and seduction, Artemis Gordon achieved with a combination of guile, cunning, and trickery. He was also, besides being a master of disguise, a well-educated chemist and physicist. In the series, he is just as likely to pull out a microscope and a Bunsen burner as a rifle or a revolver. And in fact, he has an entire lab set up in The Wanderer. On a related note, he's also an inventor and comes up with a number of ingenious gadgets from exploding billiard balls to underwater breathing masks. These gadgets and weapons he creates go to James West, who uses them very cleverly in his work in the field. Perhaps the most famous of these is the trick derringer that James West wears quite literally up his sleeve. With a flex of a particular muscle, it pops out into his hand, and lo and behold, he's armed and ready to go. The great steampunk star of the series is the Wanderer itself, the steam engine train that takes Jim and Artie across the country. Like the TARDIS, it seems to be larger on the inside than it appears to be on the outside. It is not only the home of the two agents, but also their horses. And it houses the science lab, as well as the kitchen, the living quarters, and an impressive stash of weaponry. The train itself is as high-tech as it comes, outfitted with flares, with its own telegraph system, with hidden weaponry of all sorts, its own alarm system, and even an elaborate method of accepting and housing homing pigeons. Moreover, its main services are magnetized so that the motion of the train doesn't affect, for example, the items on tables. There was a commitment to making the Wild Wild West something other than another Western, Although it was set in the West and involved characters who were, at some sense, Western law enforcement agents out in the wild, the storylines themselves often engaged in the fantastic. There were episodes that directly echoed the works of Jules Verne, Edgar Allan Poe, 
and H.P. Lovecraft, one in particular, The Night of the Burning Diamond, was consciously modeled on the H.G. Wells story, The New Accelerator, suggesting an elixir that makes people move so swiftly they become, for all intents and purposes, invisible. Just to give you a sense of some of the anachronistic technologies that popped up in episode after episode, just off the top of my head, there are steam-powered robots, steam-powered wheelchairs, doppelgangers created by reconstructing dead bodies in Frankenstein's monster-like fashion, electric chairs and armored all-terrain vehicles, both long before they were actually historically developed, half-metal, half-organic cyborg-like men, a device that opens alternate dimensions using sound waves, a potion that shrinks human bodies to a fraction of their size, a giant tuning fork that destroys buildings with its vibrations, a mechanical octopus that guards a secret underwater installation, and even an early version of an atomic bomb. All of these things were featured in various episodes of the series. The bad guys, the antagonists, varied from week to week, although some were recurring. What was so interesting about the series is that many of the bad guys actually had quite noble intentions. They were just going about it the wrong way. For example, one simply wanted to ensure women's rights were protected by law, that women's equality could, in fact, become reality. Another simply wanted to protect the ocean and the sea life contained within it from exploitation by humanity. The means they employed, though, definitely put them on the dark side. Others, of course, were motivated by the more usual desires for domination, power, riches, etc. Others were less easy to classify. For example, the night of the man-eating house pits the two agents against a dreamlike building with poltergeist-like activity coming from the fact that an innocent man had unjustly been imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit. Certainly the most enjoyable and the most steampunk of all of the villains was Dr. Miguelito Lovelace, who was portrayed by actor Michael Dunn. Dunn suffered from a rare form of arthritis that left him appearing like someone suffering from dwarfism. Show did many interesting things with his rivalry against James West, and the way that that was motivated in part because Dr. Lovelace was disfigured and West was essentially the perfect male form. And then sort of in orbit around this strange rivalry they had was Artemis Gordon, who was this protean figure who constantly changed his appearance and was always malleable and disguised. Lovelace was something of a Leonardo da Vinci-type character in that he dabbled in everything from art to physics. Again and again, we see proof that he invented technologies long before their actual date of historical invention. But because he is consumed by rage and the desire for revenge, first because his ancestral home is taken away from him, at least according to his perspective, and secondly, because agents West and Gordon continue to thwart him, he turns his attention away from all of his great inventions and devotes his time to retribution and evil. You may recall that in Arl Delight's show number 32, I talked about how politics killed the series Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. The same sort of happened to the Wild Wild West. 
You see, The Wild Wild West in its fourth season was very popular. In fact, Ross Martin was nominated for an Emmy Award for his role as Artemis Gordon. But there was growing concern in the United States about violence on television. And because of its elaborate fight sequences, and because of the weaponry that was discussed, The Wild Wild West became sort of the poster child for that issue. There were even Senate hearings about it. And so, in the end, despite its popularity, the show was given up as the sacrificial lamb and canceled after the fourth season. Luckily, this did not permanently kill the franchise. There were two reunion films, 10 and 11 years later, respectively, in 1979 and 1980, The Wild Wild West Revisited and More Wild Wild West. These reunited Robert Conrad and Ross Martin and received good ratings. And in fact, more were planned. But unfortunately, in 1981, Ross Martin died of a massive heart attack. Martin actually had had an earlier heart attack during the fourth season and had to sit out several episodes, but had recovered and rejoined the series. While the show was on the air, it inspired a novel by Richard Wormser called The Wild Wild West and a seven-issue comic book series by Gold Key Comics. Later, after the series was off the air, Millennium Publications in 1990 produced a fantastic four-part comic book series, hardcore steampunk, called The Night of the Iron Tyrants, and I highly recommend it. As well, in 1998, Berkeley Books published three novels by Robert Vaughn, The Wild Wild West, The Novel, The Night of the Death Train, and The Night of the Assassin. There was also a reboot film made in 1999 that starred Will Smith as James West and Kevin Kline as Artemis Gordon. And while this held to the steampunk motif, it drastically changed the characters and thus was not a hit with fans of the show or at the box office. Today, the entire series and the reunion films are available on DVD. They are remarkable in their own right, but they also set the stage for other works that came later, including The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., Firefly, and Serenity. I highly recommend them if you want to see steampunk before steampunk was steampunk, or, for that matter, cool. Although cool is an excellent way to describe James West and Artemis Gordon as they travel the country in The Wanderer. I look forward to joining you again soon with another look back at genre history. Big Amy, thank you so much. Busy times for Amy, she has got a book out, don't forget. The Intersection of Fantasy and Native America. So please do look out for that. Check on our website at amyhsturgis.com. Next up is Main Fiction by Aliette de Boudard. Elliot lives in Paris where she works as a computer engineer. In her spare time, she writes speculative fiction with short stories published or forthcoming in Asimov's Realms of Fantasy and Fantasy Magazine. She was a Campbell Award finalist and a Writers of the Future winner. Her first novel, The Aztec Fantasy Servant of the Underworld, will be released in 2010 by Angry Robot. Elliot has also got a story in the Apex Book of World Science Fiction. And that's the anthology that Lavi Tadar has put together. And this story that you're about to hear is to celebrate that book coming out. This is actually a story that's in the November issue of Apex Magazine. So do look out for Apex Magazine and do look out for that book, that anthology, the Apex Book of World Science Fiction. 
Today's narration is by Kate Baker and Kate got this story a little under a week ago and I says, Kate, I need it today. <laughs> so Kate, thank you so much for pulling out all the stops. Thank you so much indeed. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. After the Fire by Aliette de Boudard As narrated by Kate Baker In her dreams, Xiao Ten saw father hands outstretched, the flesh of the fingers fraying away to reveal the yellowed, tapered shapes of bones, the deep-set eyes bulging in their sockets, pleading, begging her to take him away. You're dead, she whispered. Rest in peace with the ancestors. Watch over us from heaven. But the ancestors were bones and dried sinews, shambling upright from the wreck of their graves, anger shining in the hollows of their eye sockets as they walked past the devastated gardens, the withered trees, the dried-out waterfalls and rivers. And clouds marched across heaven, a billowing mass of sickly gray spreading to cut the path of the red carp as it rose away from earth. Xiao Ten woke up with a start, instinctively bending over to cough out the fluid that blocked her lungs. But something held her, pressed against her as tightly as the embrace of earth. Where? She tried to pull herself upright, to breathe, but she was still held. She couldn't. Father. Shun Jiaoten, a voice said with the cultured accents of the court, loud enough to cover the frantic beating of her heart. Stand by for awakening procedure. Something shifted, and she was upright, the fluid choking her. A cough wrung her body, spraying the obstruction out of her lungs. She inhaled in huge gulps while the light around her slowly grew, the stale air searing her throat. Where? But she remembered. All the dreams the grinning skulls and the withered flesh on brittle bones, the forests coated in liquid metal, the wind that bore the rank smell of carrion. When the hibernation couch released her, Xiao Ten stumbled out on her knees and bent over, racked by coughing fits, feeling as though she was going to spit everything out, lungs and liver and stomach. But the only thing that came out was more of the hibernation fluid, a gray ooze that spread across the pristine metal surface of the ship's quarters. It took her a while to stand, and a while longer for the images to stop hovering in front of her face, for father's burnt face to disappear, back among the dead, where it belonged. Shun Jiaoten, the voice said again, echoing under the metal ceiling, the red carp has need of you. Go to the navigation room. A quick glance around her confirmed that all the other sleepers were still in their couches, and the ship around her was silent. What had happened? But she knew better than to ask. The only way to communicate with the ship's mind would be to jack in physically, and that could only be done by the engineers and the pilots, those with the proper implants and authorizations. Why had they woken her up, then? What need had they for a scholar, a poet, a painter of landscapes and flowers brought on the exodus only as a favor to her sister? Her sister. Su Quang. She was the engineer. She was the one who truly mattered. 
the one they'd wake up if there was a problem. Something was wrong. Xiao Ten pulled herself to the door, sliding it open with a touch of her hand, and moved into the corridor trying to ignore the growing hollow in her stomach. Everything was deserted. Everything gleamed with the coldness of metal. The light, reflected on a thousand surfaces, danced and coalesced into ten thousand patterns, ten thousand forms that might have been drawings or characters. The beginning of sentences hovering on the edge of significance, always dissolving before Xiao Ten could focus on them. And no other noise but her own labored breathing, her lungs struggling to reaccustom themselves to a normal atmosphere. She hadn't realized, before the exodus, how huge the red carp was. Going upward, she passed row upon row of hibernation rooms, from the scholars to the officials, from the officials to the lower ranks of the court, and further up was the highest room, where the emperor, the son of heaven, the holder of the divine mandate, slept in his own couch. A little lower than this would be the navigation room, a reminder that the pilots of the Exodus were almost, but not as powerful as the Emperor. Xiao Ten walked through the corridors, seeing everything merge and blur into an endless dream of metal. There was a wind blowing through the ship, not the cold one between the stars, but a hot and rancid one, with a smell like spoiled butter like curdled cheese left too long in the sun. The metal quivered and danced, became the red of flames, which swept up, and second cousin Yu's skin crinkled and blackened like charred paper, and her eyes popped like chestnuts in the fire's wake. Something swam out of the darkness in which she walked, a picture against a red background, a fierce, dark face with a beard and eyes like black beads. Batons crossed in front of silk robes. A guardian deity, and his twin by his side, pale-skinned, his two straight swords drawn against threats, the doors they protected, tight metal panes cold and reassuring. Xiao Ten laid a hand against the doors, feeling the coldness travel up her arm into her heart. If she closed her eyes, she knew she'd see father again. Or perhaps Aunt Xin or one of the other concubines, all the dead she couldn't forget, an endless chain of ghosts stretching back to the wreck of earth, blood stronger than mountains, more enduring than jade or cinnabar. Why had they woken her up? It should have been Su Quang at the door, not her. I'm here, Xiao Ten said aloud. Now would you tell me what you want? She moved her hand to the control panel long enough for the ship's mind to recognize her. The doors parted like the leaves of a book, and she entered the navigation room. Inside it was cool and dark and silent. The air smelled of ginseng and pine essence, not quite enough to mask the staleness of the recycling. This was ridiculous. She couldn't possibly fix whatever was wrong. Couldn't the ship's mind tell the difference between Xiao Ten and her sister? Something shifted in the shadows, the sound of breathing coming in small, ragged gasps. Someone? Impossible. All the colonists slept in their hibernation couches. All the pilots were in their berths, augmenting the ship's computing capacity with their own minds. 
There should have been no one. Xiao Ten? A voice asked. Su Quang. But she didn't have her usual confidence. Her voice sounded empty and a little startled, as if she'd been doing something that Xiao Ten had interrupted, something reprehensible. Cautiously, Xiao Ten approached. The hollow feeling in her stomach, if anything, was growing larger. Su Quang was sitting on her knees at the foot of the pilot's wall. Above her, bulges in the metal marked the crew members' berths. The metal was translucid, letting her see the crew resting as snug in there as in a hibernation couch. Their faces were pale against the gray fluid, their eyes bruised, their mouths set in troubled grimaces. One of the control panels, that of the second in command, blinked dark blue, the sign of a problem. I should have known they'd wake you up, Su Quang said as Xiao Ten approached. I, Xiao Ten stopped, seeing what Su Quang had spread on the ground. A letter on white paper stamped with the seal of the courts of hell, filled with scrawled, disorderly characters, and a welding knife carefully set aside from the writing brush. That wasn't good. You only wrote to the dead ancestors for one reason, and that was to apologize for the shame you would be bringing on the family. Such as the shame of not living on. Aren't you supposed to be fixing the ship? She asked, slowly. All that Su Quang had to do was pick up the welding knife and open her own throat, and there'd be nothing that Xiao Ten could do and nothing the ship could do either. It had been programmed to take care of itself and the passengers in the hibernation couches, but it couldn't act outside of that. No wonder the ship had woken Xiao Ten up. Su Quang raised bruised eyes towards her. I can't. What do you mean? Xiao Ten asked. You're the best engineer we have. That's why the ship picked you. Su Quang shook her head. I'm capable of repairing damage, but what's the point? The point? Xiao Ten knelt by Su Quang's side, carefully and laid a hand on her wrist. We're the only ones left, the hope of rebirth for the whole world. When we reached the colony, we destroyed Earth, Xiao Ten. Xiao Ten tried to ignore the images of the fire, sweeping through the steps and the grasslands, racing up towards the launch rail in the instant before the ship took off, in a blaze of light. The alchemist did, she said. Whoever made the white fire did. We all did, Su Quang sucked in a breath, went on, her voice shaking. The alchemists, the engineers, the soldiers... Every one of us with our little experiments. Every one of us reporting on what worked and what didn't. Building the sum of knowledge that they used to make the fire. Do you really think we deserve to be carried away? The Emperor ordered us to board the ship. Would you go against that? Su Quang's hands clenched. There are higher powers than the Emperor. Not many. Enough, Su Quang said. Please, Yao Ten, just leave me be. I can't, you know I can't. Su Quang's presence had made the exodus bearable, 
the knowledge that the Shun lineage wasn't reduced to Jiao Ten alone, to a mediocre poet unable to pass the state examinations, that, in the vastness of the ship, in the strangeness of their new home, they could still watch out for each other as they'd done when they were children. And you know I can't ignore it anymore, either. Su Kuang was silent, her lips compressed. She couldn't ignore Xiao Ten without being rude. But neither did she agree. Xiao Ten tried something else. We're the only ones left. Father's flesh, mother's blood. If we die, then the last trace of them will vanish. Su Kuang's eyes were as dark as scorched meat her pupils dilated by grief. I know what we've done, Xiaoten. I still see them there in my dreams, in my waking days. Father and mother and Aunt Xin and the rest of them. All those we've left behind, Xiaoten thought, shivering. But it didn't matter, it shouldn't matter. The dead were dead and the future belonged to the living. It had to. Su Quang, she said slowly. I share your grief, I understand. Truly she did. She saw them too, all the ones they couldn't save. All those the emperor had been forced to abandon as they flew away. All those the fire had taken. But to commit suicide. She paused, looking for a suitable quote to paraphrase, and finally settled on Grand Historian. Sima Xian. Some deaths are weightier than Mount Tai, some lighter than swans down. Your death will achieve nothing. You're wrong, Su Quang said, but her gaze strayed to the dark blue light still blinking in the shadows and wouldn't come back to Xiao Ten. It would atone for what we've done. Xiao Ten took a deep breath and called on the classics which Su Quang would know by heart, just like her. A person's virtue is seen through the whole of their lives, not the manner of their death. It is seen by the benefits of their acts. You know this. I used to. Once. You can't bring them back, Xiao Tem said. You can't change the past. And death is no atonement. It's just a way to preserve your dignity. That's not what I'm doing. It's different, Xiao Ten. You know it is. Her voice shook. Xiao Ten said nothing. There was no need to. At length, Su Quang said, You're right. I've been selfish, Xiao Ten, and arrogant. Her smile was devoid of any joy. And I have a ship to repair. She rose, laid her hand against the faulty berth. The wall softened, flowed up her wrist, her arm, the gleaming metal coating her skin and her clothes, burrowing into her body to connect her implants to the ship's mind. It's going to be a while, she said. You might as well make yourself comfortable. Xiao Ten propped herself up against the farthest wall, watching her sister. Nothing happened that she could see. Su Quang did not move, although the metal of the ship shifted from time to time, changing colors like a living being. Her mind drifted into the land of dreams, the metal flowed upwards, 
covering Su Quang as it had covered the trees and flowers, choking them to death. She and Su Quang ran on the dry earth, behind the wall of the fire, which grew more and more distant as it swept away from them. The trees were shining masses coated with the melted metal of the skyscrapers, the mountain's sterile rocks with the corpse of acid-eaten forests, and underfoot were ashes, and bones crackling like corn in the frying pan, their pale fragments billowing in the air small and sharp. The only light came from a figure dressed in white, a woman with androgynous face, who gathered bones in her hands with the plodding method of the desperate. She smiled bleakly when they came near, holding out her soot-stained hands. See, my children, she cried, and her voice was that of a quivering wail of oboes at funerals. They are one with the universe, and the universe is no more. And tears ran down her cheeks, evaporating in the roiling heat and the fire ate at her skin and at her bones until her light had become that of the flames, and her voice was overwhelmed by the screams of billions. See, my children. Xiao Ten woke up with a start in the dark, the after-images of the fire imprinted on her retina, and the woman's grinning skull superimposed on the navigation room. The woman... Guan Yin, Bodhisattva of mercy, she too, taken by the fire, eaten away to nothing. Her heart beat in her chest with the frantic desperation of a caged hummingbird. They hadn't done this, not any of this. It wasn't their fault. They couldn't have done anything. But deep where it mattered, she knew it for a lie, a flimsy, unacceptable excuse. The light above the berth blinked red, the color of good fortune and things gone right, slow and steady, the anchor for her flailing sanity. The ship's metal flowed away from Su Quang, revealing once more the green of her clothes, the pale color of her skin, the exhaustion in her eyes. Xiao Ten stood up, trying to calm the frantic beat of her heart. It's done, Su Quang said. We'll have a safe journey. Xiao Ten forced a smile she didn't feel and held out her hand to Su Quang. Come, let's go back to sleep then. With luck, they won't wake us up before we reach the planet. No, Su Quang said. I guess they won't. She sucked in a breath, her gaze shifting down to the welding knife. The hollow feeling returned in the pit of Xiao Ten's stomach, sharp and cold. Su Quang, think of the others. Su Quang raised her gaze again, her eyes filled with such a desperate need that Xiao Ten knew, with absolute certainty, that she could not stop her sister, that she didn't have the right to. Su Quang's hand moved towards the knife, the outstretched fingers hovered over the handle for an agonizingly long while. At length, and with a visible effort, she withdrew. You're right, she said tonelessly. Let's go back. She didn't speak again until they'd walked back to her own hibernation couch, close to the navigation room, 
along with the ship's engineers and the few remaining alchemists, until Xiao Ten had wedged her into the couch and the cycle of hibernation had started. Sleep well, sister, Su Quang whispered then, as the couch swung shut. Xiao Ten laid her hand against the outer panel of the couch and caught a distorted reflection of herself in the metal disheveled and pale, her eyes bruised and haunted, her skin the color of things that no longer saw the sun, and ten thousand ghosts on her back, bowing her shoulders and spine. Sleep well, she whispered in return. She knew the truth, as did Su Quang, that in sleep there was no oblivion, that the weight of their transgression would never be erased, and that the dead were with them, carried in their minds and in their hearts, that... As the fire had eaten those left behind, they in turn would gnaw at the sleepers every hour, every day, tearing away the will to live, at the fabric and sanity of their being until nothing was left. Red lights hummed on the control panel, and from inside came a sound like rushing water, the hibernation fluid filling the couch flowing into Su Quang's nostrils and lungs like water into a drowning man. Drowning, Xiao Ten thought. All of us, floundering in our couches, carrying our grief and guilt and madness between the stars. All of the ghosts that we won't ever exercise, dragging us down a slow, lingering death instead of the fire. Drowning. She thought of the desperate hunger in Su Quang's eyes, and she wondered how many among them would ever come up for air. There you go. Do pop over to Aliette's site. There will be a link on Starship Sova and pop over to Kate's site. Say a big thank you to Kate. Next up is we have JJ Campanella. Jim. What's going on in the science world? Greetings and salivations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this November 2009 installment of Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening, Jim Campanella. Yes, you did hear right. I said salivations. Forgive me for my bad joke, but the first story of the night is about the sense of taste. So I figured salivations fit. You would think that the sense of taste is one of those things that we pretty much have a handle on. I mean, obviously, people have been th tasting things for thousands of years. That's why it came as a bit of a surprise in the early 1900s when a new taste was discovered. It goes by the name of umami because it was discovered by a Japanese researcher. In case you've never heard of it before, it's the ability to taste savory, meaty flavors like monosodium glutamate or the, the flavor of uh, soy sauce, that sort of strong, savory flavor in soy sauce. That was about 100 years ago. Well, a new flavor has been now discovered. Hold on to your hats. It's carbonation. Yes, we can actually taste carbon dioxide in our drinks. Dr. Charles Zucker of Columbia University and his research group reported in October in the journal Science that the sour-tasting cells in humans can also detect carbonation. And it's not the bubbles themselves that are being detected, as many scientists suggested before the study. Zucker found that bubbly drinks still taste distinctly carbonated, even when they're drunk in a pressure chamber where the bubbles don't actually burst. The researchers measured nerve activity in mouse taste cells, 
When the rodents were given carbon dioxide and club soda, or straight gaseous CO2, their taste cells responded robustly to the CO2. Zucker then genetically engineered the mice to be missing one of the five kinds of taste cells, sweet, salty, umami, bitter, and sour. It was found that the mice missing sweet, salty, umami, and bitter receptors still fired in response to carbon dioxide. It was only in the mice without the sour receptor that no firing occurred. And that pinpointed the role of the sour-tasting taste cells in the process. Well, the obvious question is why? Why have we evolved the ability to taste bubbles of Coca-Cola and champagne? This is presumably not a marketing ploy on either the part of aliens or Mother Nature. Zucker suggests, quote, In the bigger picture, tasting carbonation may have allowed animals to sense CO2 produced in foods that had fermented or gone bad, akin to how bitter-sensing taste cells can warn of potential toxicity, unquote. Well, the next story I find kind of interesting because my 18-month-old son still has stubbornly decided not to talk. He understands fine and follows directions and even has a small number of sign language signs that he uses that he learned in daycare. And he babbles so his vocal cords are okay. He has just decided that he has nothing to say, probably because we understand him just fine enough. So the story concerns the earliest aspects of human language acquisition. How early do you think that kids start to learn your language? Two months old? Six months old? Twelve? How about this? How about they start to learn within two to five days after birth? Kathleen Wurmke of the University of Würzburg in Germany and her colleagues published a paper in the November 5th issue of Current Biology that has evidence that babies actually begin to acquire basic language skills just a few days after birth. Dr. Wurmke reported that by two to five days of age, infants' cries bear the, quote, tonal signature of their parents' native tongue, a sign that language learning has already begun. Native language speakers use melodic patterns and pitch shifts to give their words and phrases emotional meaning. Changes in pitch and rhythm, for example, can indicate anger. During the first few days of life, babies can hear what their mothers or nearby adults are saying providing exposure to melodies that are peculiar to a specific language. Well, Wormke proposes that newborns can actually recreate those familiar patterns in at least some of their crying. Wormke says, quote, Our data support the idea that human infants crying is important for seeding language development. Melody lies at the roots of both the development of spoken language and music, unquote. Dr. Wormke and her colleagues studied 60 newborns, 30 born to French families, and 30 born to German. The researchers recorded 2,500 cries as mothers were changing babies' diapers, uh, readying the babies for feeding, or, or otherwise just interacting with the children. Acoustic measurements allowed the researchers to identify 1,254 cries. In this case, a, a cry is a, a vocalization produced in a single breath. That's how they actually defined it. And these cries contained clear rising and falling arcs that were suitable for detailed analysis. The cries of German newborns tended to start out high-pitched and then move increasingly to lower pitches, whereas French newborns started out low-pitched and then moved to higher pitches. And this is actually comparable to the high-to-low and low-to-high intonation patterns that characterize words and phrases by fluent speakers of German and French. 
And listen to this. Vermke put it online. You see the point now. Getting back to my son, it's interesting that despite these results, a related scientific debate concerns whether parents' native language influences how babies babble during the first year of life. Oddly enough, it's generally regarded that babies babbling are a universal set of sounds largely immune to cultural or linguistic influences. This is strange because most researchers consider babbling a kind of human meta-language. Now, I don't entirely follow the reasoning here that baby cries are affected by native language, but their babbling is not. But then again, I'm not a medical anthropologist or a linguist. Just to get away from biology for a second, let's look at astronomy. First, a story from our own solar system, which smacks of science fiction, and it is just plain cool. Dr. Richard Greenberg of the University of Arizona reported at the October 9th annual meeting of the American Astronomical Society that he hypothesizes that Europa, one of the moons of Jupiter, has about 100 times more oxygen in its ocean than previous models indicated, enough to support respiration of about 3 million tons of Terran fish, or their Europan equivalent. Researchers who've been hunting for signs of life beyond Earth have long suggested that Europa, because of its icy surface and the fact that it has no craters in its terrain, They've, they've suggested that the moon contains a vast ocean buried under that ice. Greenberg calculated that oxygen generated by ions striking water molecules on the moon's surface would take 1 to 2 billion years to begin seeping into the ocean and oxygenating it. That is enough time for life to evolve, according to many researchers, including Greenberg. I mean, we don't often think about this, but oxygen is actually quite poisonous to life if that life has not evolved slowly with it. Oxygen breaks down into radicals, which in turn can damage protein, DNA, or other molecules which are essential to life. Even on Earth, we have anaerobic bacteria that will die quickly if exposed to oxygen because they simply do not have the enzymes necessary to degrade those nasty radicals. If oxygen on Europa had been immediately released into the ocean, it would have destroyed fledgling life, which would never have had a chance to develop at all. Greenberg suggested that over a period of about 50 million years, a layer of ice 300 meters thick slowly rose from below and eventually covered the moon's surface and erased the old craters. As a result of this facelift, Europa's oxygenated layer grew increasingly thick until after about 1 to 2 billion years, the entire ice layer was oxygen-rich. At that point, ice melting at the bottom of the frozen layer began delivering oxygen into the proposed buried ocean at a faster rate than previously estimated, resulting in about 100 times more oxygen in the ocean. And seriously, when I read all this, all I can think about was that story, Frozen Sky, by Jeff Carlson, that was presented in Oral Delights number 35. Seriously, it's an awesome story. Check it out. You'll understand what I mean if you haven't heard the story. Okay, this next story is an update. We've been following over the last year or so the search for exoplanets. If you don't remember, the term exoplanet refers to a planet which is outside our solar system. Over the last year or so, I've reported smaller and smaller exoplanets being discovered. Many of the planets have been just a few times bigger than the Earth, but almost all of them have not been terrestrial-type planets with a hard core. Dr. Didier Queloz and his colleagues 
at the Geneva Observatory have reported in the November issue of the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics that they finally have found something that is very close to Earth's size and rocky. Quelloz's planet is about 500 light-years from Earth and closely orbits its parent star, but it's much too hot to support life. It's about 2,000 degrees Celsius on its sunny side. However, the diameter and newly determined mass of the planet, dubbed Korot 7b, indicate that the planet has a bulk composition very similar to Earth's. That is, this new planet likely has a silicate mantle and iron core. And that is, yes, just like our good old home sweet home here. The mass measurement of the planet, in combination with the diameter, reveals that it has an average density of about 5.5 grams per cubic centimeter. Believe it or not, that's almost identical to Earth. Now, this is the smallest extrasolar planet yet known, with a diameter of about 1.8 times that of Earth. The researchers were able to pin down the size of the planet because the orb periodically passes in front of its parent star as seen from the Earth, and it blocks out a tiny amount of sunlight. Astronomers are seriously excited about this because they think that it's only the beginning. More and smaller planets are on the way, they predict, and they will look even more like the Earth, perhaps even with water. On whether they actually find these planets, only time will tell. There are certainly researchers out there who still believe that our planet is unique, but statistically, that just doesn't seem very likely. Okay, the listener question of the month. Listener question of the month comes from Jason Derry, who asked two questions, and neither of them are part of my expertise. Remember that as you listen to me prattle here. Question number one, why can't we produce clean energy from burning hydrogen electrolyzed from water? And the answer is, of course we can. Hydrogen can be used for fuel, and there are actually quite a number of vehicles, almost entirely for industrial purposes, mind you, that run on hydrogen. Heck, um, Shell Oil is so confident that hydrogen vehicles will become more popular, they actually opened the first free hydrogen pumping station in New York last February. Of course, it's easy to make something free when you're pretty confident that there are maybe four vehicles in the whole town who will use it. Honda actually has sold a couple of hundred Clarities in the U.S. A Clarity is a hydrogen fuel-based car, and probably if you haven't heard of it, it's not a surprise. It's supposed to be an excellent vehicle, and it burns hydrogen from its tank to run the engine. The other type of vehicle that you may be thinking of or you may have heard of is called a fuel cell car. Now, a fuel cell does exactly what you described. It takes water, breaks it down into hydrogen and oxygen, and then uses the hydrogen for fuel. Unfortunately, given the prohibitive cost of a fuel cell vehicle, they are custom-made, not mass-produced. No automaker is going to be selling them to the public for the next 10 or 15 years. And many energy companies remain skeptical of the long-term prospects for hydrogen, arguing, among other things, that even when government help, the infrastructure costs, the setup costs, so that everybody would have access to hydrogen, they would just be enormous. Now, as far as using hydrogen for large-scale energy production, it's just impractical right now. Remember, it takes energy to make hydrogen. You have to put too much energy in to make the hydrogen to make it a viable alternative energy source on a large scale. So be patient. Your hydrogen car is coming. It just may be a few years yet. Now, question number two, whatever happened to cold fusion from the 1980s? Well, that answer is pretty easy. Nothing. And that's the problem. On March 23, 1989, Fleischmann and Pons 
claimed that they had achieved nuclear fusion in a jar of water at room temperature. Their claim was met with disbelief and then excitement. If cold fusion was possible, it could certainly solve the energy crisis. And in the following weeks, physicists from the best research centers in the world sought to replicate Pons and Fleischmann's experiment, and they failed miserably. On May 3, 1989, while Pons was in Washington waiting to meet with then-President Bush's advisors, the American Physical Society concluded that every possible variant of the Pons-Fleischmann experiments had been tried without any success. They concluded that the claim of cold fusion was invalid. Mind you, despite the overwhelming evidence that suggests that cold fusion cannot be achieved, given the experimental setup of Pons and Fleischmann, there are still lots of, well, fringe scientists, including a professor emeritus of physics from my own university, who insist it is possible. If you want an excellent text to read about the history of cold fusion, I suggest reading Bad Science, The Short Life and Weird Times of Cold Fusion by Gary Taubes. It's published out of Random House. I recommend it highly if you want to know the details about the entire sordid affair. Okay, now seriously, I was not going to do an ant story this month. I, I swear, I thought I had pretty much mined out that particular vein of interest. But I came across this story completely by accident, and I thought it was so interesting I had to pass it along. Uh, the, the, the story is a bit different than what I've been relating about ants over the last several months. Uh, this is less to do with their physiology and communication and more to do with their sheer annoying nature. We think that ants are tiny and can have little effect on big animals, especially animals like birds who should come into contact with ants rarely. But such is not always the case. Ecologist Dr. Dennis O'Dowd of Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, reported in the September 15th issue of the journal Biology Letters on a species of ant that is apparently annoying to a large range of animals. You've probably heard of the red fire ant that's found in South and Central America and now in Southern North America. It's a nasty species that makes large nests, has a painful sting, and is quite aggressive. It's legendary for being just plain malevolent. And believe it or not, there are actually species of ants that are even more aggressive and mean. Dr. O'Dowd reports on the yellow crazy ant, an aggressive invasive ant that even drives birds nuts. It's called the yellow crazy ant because it scurries around insanely, hence crazy ant. O'Dowd found that on Christmas Island, an Australian territory in the Indian Ocean, hordes of yellow crazy ants pester birds that try to land on plants and eat. They found that if the ants were kept off plant stems in the ant-invaded zones, that more than double the chances that a fruit would actually be bitten by a bird. The conclusion these crazy ants were keeping the birds from eating. On Christmas Island, the ants have caused so many changes to the ecology that O'Dowd and Dr. Peter Green have declared an invasional meltdown of the original ecosystem. Ants probably got onto the island about 100 years ago, but they've really boomed since the 1990s. Super colonies now cover swaths of the island in such density that the ants in a feeding frenzy, can clear the forest of its once-important crab species. They swarm over the crabs, they bite them, they spray the poor things with formic acid. And the ants climb onto the birds, too. In ant-dense zones, O'Dowd sees birds stomp and ruffle their feathers as if maddened by crawling ants. 
To see if this nuisance affects the bird's feeding, the authors set out an array of artificial fruits made from non-toxic modeling clay. In forests not yet invaded by ants, the fruit showed more than twice as many peck marks by the birds as fake fruits in the ant zones. The really amazing thing about these observations is that something so small can affect vertebrate animals so directly and mess with the ecosystem so completely. The authors are quite worried that these and other aggressive species are moving beyond their tropical venues. O'Dowd says, quote, People have to wake up to what invasive ants are doing to world ecosystems. These disruptive ants are moving far and wide. Everyone has to realize how important ants are, unquote. All right, enough on that subject. Here is a bisphenol A update from last month. You may remember that I discussed BPA as being a hormonal analog found in plastics that causes all sorts of developmental problems. Dr. Bruce Lamphere of Simon Fraser University reports that BPA exposure in the womb during development can affect both boys and girls. In utero exposure makes girls more aggressive and boys become more withdrawn and anxious. Now that's a serious worry, but it's not really a surprise. What is a surprise is that they found a new source of BPA exposure, credit card and store receipts. It turns out that carbonless copy paper works by coating a powdery layer of BPA onto one side of a piece of paper, along with an invisible ink. Later, when you apply pressure or heat, the BPA and the ink merge together and you get color. They found that the average cash register receipt that's out there and uses the BPA technology has about 60 to 100 milligrams of free BPA. By free, a physiologist would mean that that's not bound into a polymer, like the BPA in polycarbonate plastics. It's just individual molecules loose and ready for uptake. As such, when it comes to BPA in the urban environment, the biggest exposures may well be cash register receipts. Once on the fingers, the BPA can be transferred to foods or to other people. Or like estrogen in controlled release patches, it may be that BPA might similarly enter the skin directly. Great, now I can't drink anything out of plastic and I have to refrain from touching receipts? This is just looking better and better. And like I pointed out last month, this is a chemical that we know about. You figure that there must be a whole panoply of chemicals that are out there that are affecting us without our knowledge. Oh, by the way, just to put this into perspective, plastic bottles, which I talked about last month, they release nanogram quantities of BPA, not milligrams. Now, what do you think is more dangerous? Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care, stay away from receipts and crazy yellow ants, and I hope I have inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, Jim. Thank you so much. So that is Oral Delight, show 109. Bit of a landmark day today, like I say. This is the, the final time for the engines of the original Starship so far. We'll fire up. Tomorrow there will be shiny new turbo boosted engines. So look after yourselves, and I will catch you next week. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? 
Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A battery race